Thanks for joining us at Mountainside, anywhere. We're praying that God will use this teaching to reveal himself to you in his word. Through it, may you see him more clearly, know him more fully, and trust him more deeply. As always, we are here to serve. Please reach out through mountainside.online if there's a specific way we can come alongside to pray, help, or encourage throughout the week. Let's join Pastor Dave now as he continues our study in the book of Mark. Boy, that was great. That was a great time of worship, especially the last song. The hair didn't rise up on your arms. Wow. Thank you so much. April 26, 1865 was not a good day for Dr. Samuel Alexander Mudd. He was a doctor, and a man arrived at his home with a broken leg, and he mended it, and the man took off. And hours later, federal troops showed up and arrested Dr. Mudd for participating in the conspiracy to assassinate Abraham Lincoln. The leg he had set had been none other than John Wilkes Booth. Two weeks later, a nine-man military commission tried Dr. Mudd, along with seven other accused conspirators. The trial lasted until June 30th. They convicted all eight defendants. Four were sentenced to death. Mudd received a life sentence. Mudd saved, and as a side note, he was... He was uh, in prison during the yellow fever epidemic and, and ministered to many of the prisoners. In 1869, uh, Andrew, President Andrew Johnson pardoned him, but his life was ruined. His name was Mud. And have you ever heard that expression, his name is Mud? That's where it comes from. Um, he died in 1883, only 50 years later. We've had many sensational trials over the, over the years, um, and uh, they always capture our attention, capture the nation's attention. Um, sometimes they are they're scandalous because they release other times for other reasons, but there, there has never been a more scandalous trial than what we're going to look at today and next week, the six trials of, of Jesus. Jesus was tried in two forms, in the religious forum. Uh, we, say, we speak of six trials, and it's almost like two and a half in the religious. That's what we're going to look at today. And then next week, we'll look at Jesus before Pilate and Herod uh, for the uh, national um, or the uh, political trials. Um, and so as we look at the text, as I said last week, as we come to these final days, We're going to jump around between the Gospels as we preach through Mark, and we're just weeks away from completing that study. Easter Sunday will be the last Sunday that will be in Mark. Uh, We've realized that sometimes Mark hardly says anything about something that we feel is important to teach in the life of Christ, and so we have uh, filled in uh, Mark's Gospel, our teaching of Mark's Gospel with other things, and that's the case uh, as well to today. Um, and so we're going to begin in John 18, and then we'll go back to Mark. But we left last week with Jesus having prayed his prayer, Father, if it's, Father, you can do all things. If it's possible, take this cup of suffering from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. And so he speaks of his relationship with God the Father. Then he worships, in a sense, he speaks of God's ability to do anything. He then 
lays out his petition before the Lord and then proclaims his statement of faith. The most important thing, however, is that your will be done. And uh, I think that is, uh, is instructive in us in how to pray, especially when we don't know how to pray, especially when we are standing next to somebody who's dying or suffering, and we can go to God and say, I want this person to be healed, and I'm asking you to heal this person, but there's one thing I want more than that, and that's for your will to be done, because I don't know everything. I don't know... Uh, in our grief share uh, meeting this past week, Tony Tinda said, uh, all the known facts are not all the facts. Isn't that great? There's things that I know, but I don't know all the facts. I don't know what God's going to do in this moment. I don't know what God's going to do behind the scenes. I don't know what God is going to do with using this uh, to accomplish something. And so, though I may feel I have a clear picture of what is going on, I have no idea of the mind of God and all that God has planned. And so, Jesus is arrested, and he's taken off. Uh, John 18, verse 12, the soldiers, their commanding officer and the temple guards arrested Jesus and tied him up and first took him to Annas, since he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest at that time. Caiaphas was the one who had told the other Jewish leaders, it's better that one man should die for the people. Annas, in sometimes in the gospel, is referred to as the high priest, but he is the former high priest, and he retains that title, much the way a president or a judge might still be called Mr. President or use the term president, a prefix to their name. But um, at this point in time, the high priest was not a religious um, dissension from the children of Aaron. You know, there was a delineated in the scripture who was qualified to become the high priest. It was a Roman appointment. And the Romans are not very good at being able to discern spirituality. And so it becomes a political thing. And Annas was so powerful that if you look to the right of the screen, you'll see that uh, he controlled who was uh, in that place of high priest. His son, his son-in-law, again, another son, another son. Um, and so we see that even down to his grandchildren, he was in control. So when Jesus is arrested, they bring him to the godfather of the priesthood, so to speak. It's a horrible combination of words, but it really defines what is going on here. It's a political position. It is a position of wealth, and power. Uh, whoever was high priest controlled the Sanhedrin, which were the religious leaders. But if you understand is, uh, the life of Israel, you understand that everything was controlled uh, underneath the leaders of Sanhedrin. And uh, if you remember, and uh, you probably don't because sometimes I don't remember what I preached on two weeks ago, uh, but when we began the book of Mark, I preached on the intertestament period. And that's where we see the introduction of these Sanhedrin and Pharisees and all of these things that appear in the New Testament, synagogue, um, that aren't in the Old Testament. Um, Dr. Varner used to always say, I guess he still says it because he's still living, but uh, the Old Testament is Act 1, the New Testament is Act 3. 
if you went to a three-act play and watched Act 1 and stepped out during Act 2 and came back for Act 3, uh, you would pretty much be able to pick up the story and, and move on. And so because we've been reading the New Testament, we're kind of blind to how all of these, the significance of how these things came about. And so uh, it's important to uh, sometimes take some time and to see what was happening during that intertestament period, which sets up the political scene of what is taking place in Israel. Now, it's during this time, as he is brought before Annas, that Peter's first denial takes place. Pastor Lyle, in two weeks, is going to talk about Peter, and so I'm not going to say much about it. But uh, I always think what was happened in Peter's mind when somebody says, hey, aren't you a disciple? And he says, nope, not at all. And then he walks away like, what did I just do? I better be careful. You know, that's one. Um, and Jesus had, prop, had told Peter that he would deny him three times. And so they go inside, verse 19. And the high priest began asking Jesus about his followers and what he had been teaching them. And so he's interviewing them, interviewing Jesus. You know, tell me about yourself. Um, how did you go about choosing the disciples, your followers? What is it that you plan to do with them? And part of the questioning is about his teaching. And Jesus says, everyone knows what I teach. I, I teach in public. He says, I have preached regularly in the synagogues and the temple where people gather. I've not spoken in secret. I've had a public ministry. And so if you're trying me based on what you teach, why are you asking me? Everyone knows what I was teaching. Jesus is pointing out the crookedness of what is taking place. Jewish trials first demanded witnesses. Second, they should not be tried at night. And so Jesus is, is uh, saying there should be plenty of witnesses. Well, in his answer, one of the temple guards, it says in verse 22, standing nearby, slapped Jesus across the face. Is that the way you talk to, or is that the way you answer the high priest, he demanded. And Jesus responds, if I said anything wrong, you must prove it. But if I'm speaking the truth, why are you beating me? And again, Jesus is appealing to the rule of law as laid out in the Old Testament of a witness. What did I say that was wrong? What is the accusation? So Jesus is again challenging uh, the whole affair. And now in verse 24, he, Annas has him bound and sent to Caiaphas, the high priest, Annas' son-in-law. Um, he would, Annas is the high priest from A.D. 18 to 36. Um, and Luke mentions that he was the high priest when John the Baptist was beheaded just a, just a short time before. Again in the text, this is the second time that Jesus is, or that Peter denies. Didn't I see you in the olive grove with Jesus? And he denies it. And then the third time is where Peter t swears by an oath uh, that he is not a follower. And uh, that's when the rooster crows. So if we go over to Matthew, we see what, what hap happens 
verse 57, they had arrested Jesus, led him to the home of Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of religious law and the elders had gathered. And so now Caiaphas convenes the meeting of the Sanhedrin. The religious leaders are all assembled. It was a, the Sanhedrin was a council of 71 members. It had the supreme executive, legislative, and judicial power over Jewish faith and lifestyle within the bounds of what Rome would allow. We see not only is Jesus before the Sanhedrin, but later we're going to see John, Peter and John before the Sanhedrin. We're going to see Stephen, who was stoned before the Sanhedrin, and eventually Paul will appear before the Sanhedrin. It is thought that traditionally the Sanhedrin was, in the, was rooted in the Old Testament assembly of the 70 elders, and when they came back from the captivity, um, Ezra regathered and reestablished this rule of elders. Um, and Julius Caesar, for example, uh, confirmed the power of the Sanhedrin over Judea, and so they were very important politically. Now let's go to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, verse 55 says, Inside, the leading priests and the entire high council were trying to find evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they couldn't find any. What's interesting here, right? These men are the judges. They're to listen to the evidence and make a decision. What are they doing? They're trying to build a case that they will listen to and decide. And so the judge is investigating the case, and he can't find any witnesses that will indict Jesus. Many false witnesses spoke against him, but they contradicted each other. The Old Testament called for two witnesses. Finally, some men stood up and gave this false testimony. Oh, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, in three days, I will build another one made without human hands. And Mark writes, and even they didn't get their story straight. They cannot find witnesses to testify in a way that would be consistent with pronouncing Jesus guilty. Absolute prejudice. In a sense, these words are used. Everyone, like the whole council is looking, uh, continuously looking, trying to find false testimonies so that they might put him to death. This is a capital trial. This is a trial in which the end result is to result in Jesus being killed. And so the judges are looking for people to accuse him. And they couldn't find anybody that would agree. So, Mark 14, 60. Then the high priest stood up before the others and asked Jesus, aren't you going to answer these charges because he has remained silent? What do you have to say to yourself? I mean, why does he even need to answer? Because what they're saying is wrong and disagreeing. It's just a, a big mess of, of facts. And it's hard to... The scriptures don't give us the motivation why sometimes Jesus talks and other times he doesn't. But then comes this key moment in verse 61. Then the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? This is the crux of the matter. 
Are you the promised one? Are you the one that the whole Old Testament has been anticipating from the very first sin of Adam and Eve, the one that would crush the head of the serpent? Are you the one, the Passover lamb, uh, with the establishment of the nation of Israel moving to the land of Israel? And Jesus said two words, I am. And in those two words buried in the text, Jesus is saying, yes, I am the Messiah. Now, sometimes there are conversations of where does Jesus claim to be the Messiah, claim to be God? You know, the, the whole discussion about the fact that, um, and I, I have a number of, of unsafe friends that will say something like, I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm, you know, or uh, I follow the spirit of Jesus, or they're talking about this idea that, that they like the teaching of Jesus, and that's it. Uh, the problem is, is Jesus claims to be the Messiah. The famous uh, C.S. Lewis uh, brought it back into, uh, into uh, attention, this idea of Lord, liar, lunatic, that if Jesus claimed to be Lord, claimed to be God, if he's not God, then he's insane. If, if, if he thinks he's God, but he's not. And if he's a liar in that he knows that he's not, then he's the devil himself saying to people, trust me with your future. It's an important thing to think about. You can't be a follower of Jesus and not accept the fact that Jesus said he was God. If he's lying about that, how could you follow a liar? It is just inconsistent. I gave a friend for Christmas this year. I found a book, The Sayings of Jesus, and I said, here, you know, I, I, I know you say that you follow the teachings of Jesus, here is everything Jesus said in a book. We could talk about it. Um, see what happens. Jesus but adds two things. You will see the Son of Man seated in the place of power at God's right hand and coming on the clouds of heaven. He's referring to two prophecies, and they would know exactly what he's referring to. He's referring to Psalm uh, 110.1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies and make them a footstool under my feet. And Daniel 7.13, um, the vision continued that night. I saw someone like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient one and was led into his presence. And Jesus is saying to them, I am the Messiah and you will see these two prophecies fulfilled by me. Well, there's no question in the mind of those men gathered as to what he is saying. And the high priest tears his clothing to show his horror and said, why do we need other witnesses? We don't need witnesses. He just has testified that he's the Messiah. And so he calls for a vote. You've heard his blasphemy. What is your verdict? And they yell guilty. He deserves to die. Here's, here's what's really, really interesting here, I think. They are exactly right in their judgment. Jesus said he was the Messiah, and they heard it, and now they're passing judgment. If any man said, I am God, he is blaspheming, unless he actually is God. 
because anyone else saying that would deserve to die. And the only exception to that law is God is allowed to say, I'm God. Notice the reaction. These, now again, these are the religious leaders. These are the men who are to be honorable and examples. And they began to spit at him. They blindfolded him and beat him with their fists. Prophesy to us, they jeered. Who hit you? And then they handed him over to the guards, and the guards slapped him as they took him away. A, a trial is to be impersonal. A trial is to be under control. Um, a prison sentence. Um, but it, here we're seeing uh, this personal rage, uh, spitting, this idea of disgracing him, beating him, not with a whip, but with their fists. A slapping him, a loss of control, mocking him, uncontrolled rage. I mean, this is an absolute mob scene. It's a riot in the highest group of leaders in Israel have lost control with Jesus. Now, Matthew makes it clear that there must have been a convening of these men and a reassembling of them early in the morning. Uh, that's why I said we say three, but it's like two and a half, because very early in the morning, Matthew 27, 1 and 2, the leading priests and the elders met again to lay plans for putting Jesus to death. And they bound him, led him away, and took him to Pilate. Uh, and so we're going to pick up with Pilate next, next week, the Roman governor. Look at the illegal—I said I was going to change this last night because I—look at the things that are not legal— I said, I'm going to change this when I get back to my office, and I didn't. Um, I could say it if I worked for, at it, but you don't want to hear me do that. Number one, the trial was at night. It was supposed to be done during the day. It was not to be done in secret. It was not to be done away from witnesses and accountability. Second, the accuser is the judge. It's as if, the, it's as if in our court of law, the judge is presenting the evidence and then making a decision on the evidence, finding the witnesses and not being able to find the witnesses. And it, it's, it's insanity. Third, it's rendering a verdict and a penalty of death in the same meeting or even in the same day. There was to be a 24-hour wait, a time to deliberate, a time to contemplate, a time to consider, reconsider all the evidence and make sure that you are honorable in the decision that you're making. A fourth, the physical brutality towards Jesus. They're obviously completely out of control. The, the scriptures uses words like every one of them. They're, like, they're all involved in this. It's not like one or two. It, 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 it would appear that everyone or virtually everyone. And this is so important next week. Uh, they changed the charges. What did this group find him guilty of blaspheme what will they bring to Pilate if they said to Pilate the Roman governor uh, he said he was God Pilate's going to say what does that have to do with me I mean it, okay do, take care of that yourself that's, a, that's a, a Jewish thing when they come before Pilate they're going to say accuse him of treason and 
next week is so fascinating with all of the things that are going on behind the scenes with Pilate. Pilate's in the doghouse with Caesar. Um, and so I just kind of a little taste of next week. And so he is being manipulated by the Jewish leaders and there's a lot going on. So here's another problem. Jesus has been found guilty in a Jewish court and sentenced to death in a Jewish court. What is the Jewish form of capital punishment? Stoning. Well, here are some prophecies that before uh, hundreds of years before Jesus came along, um, Psalm 22 said that he, they would pierce his hands and feet. Isaiah 53 speaks of them being numbered among the transgressors. Uh, Psalm 34.20, his bones are not broken. Zechariah 12.10, that his side would be pierced. Uh, stoning, you put a guy in the hollow or, you know, and, and everybody stands around and throws stones. It won't, a rock is not going to pierce his feet and hands. Uh, usually you're stoning a person, not one among transgressors. Uh, stones break bones and uh, stones don't pierce sides. Remember a couple weeks ago, Pastor Lyle in his two messages talked about who is in control. So hundreds of years, the prophets speak of the death of the Messiah. And Roman execution wasn't invented until hundreds of years later. It's a fairly new thing when we come on the, on the scene. And so the prophets are predicting an execution of a different sort than really existed. Crucifixion. And crucifixion results in hands and feet being pierced, bones being broken, or bones not being broken, and a side being pierced. So let's wrap this up, and then we'll continue next week. How do the trials of Jesus instruct us today? Four ways. One way is, is that God is in control. Now, if ever there was a time in the history of the world where God did not seem to be in control, it was this day, right? Uh, the God-man, the Messiah, is going to die. If you were a follower and you had believed that he was the Messiah, your expectation would be that he would rise to power and that he would overthrow Rome and free Israel. That is said multiple times by the disciples. And he's being killed by the leaders. But see, um, God is in control because something is happening that really wasn't in the mind of his followers, and that is salvation. That he was the Passover lamb. And, I, and I, to some degree, I still struggle in, and uh, when Jesus was on the Emmaus Road, and a couple times to his disciples, he says, the prophets, the Old Testament talks of my suffering. And, you know, we focus so much on the, the kingdom of Jesus ascending to the throne of David and ruling from Jerusalem. And it's not as clear in the Old Testament until you step back and you start to realize every lamb that was sacrificed in those thousand, two thousand years 
was saying Messiah will be sacrificed. In fact, the Gospel of John opens up with John, John the Baptist saying, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And so right off the bat in the Gospels, we're introduced to that. Uh, Jesus says to Nicodemus, as a serpent was raised in the wilderness. And so it's easy to miss all of the times the Old Testament is telling us about his suffering. And their eyes weren't on that. Their eyes were, were on, they were under the thumb of Rome. Their life was miserable because of Rome. And they were looking for a Messiah to free them. And that's the problem for you and for me, is we become so focused on our problem. Why isn't God fixing my problem? Doesn't God know about my problem? And he does. There's a song that we used to sing years ago, um, Does Jesus Care? And it goes through all of these situations of where it feels like Jesus cares. And then the chorus is, oh, yes, he cares. I know he cares. Uh, my hurts are, his heart is touched by my needs. And the Bible speaks about the fact that God knows me. It was read this morning, Psalm 139, that God knows me, has known me while I was, my body was being formed in my mother's womb. And so it's with the eyes of faith that we just accept that God is in control. I heard an illustration recently of uh, flying a plane. And when you fly a plane, you're supposed to watch the instruments. And there is a whole level of flying that you can fly in clouds if you're watching your instruments. But what happens is a pilot's sense begins to take over and he begins to doubt his instruments. And a pilot can come out of the clouds completely inverted or going straight down. The, I, I saw far side once where two pilots are sitting in the plane and they said, I didn't know goats could walk on clouds. Um, they weren't watching their instruments. And the Bible is our instrument. And faith recognizes that the Bible is instructing me how to navigate through this time when I can't see the end. The second thing is injustice as part of the world. Innocent people go to prison. Hard workers get fired. Children are abused and enslaved. Friends betray, lovers leave, and mankind crucifies God. That's the world we live in, fallen. Especially when someone dies the conversation is, this is not the way it should be. And that is such an open door for us to come in with a gospel when a person says things, this is just wrong. And that's because we live in a fallen world. And everything is wrong. Death is wrong. Sickness is wrong. Injustice is wrong. Abuse is wrong. The third thing is, is this allows us to see the love of God. I, I believe that the true moment of our salvation takes place when God forsakes Jesus. His wrath is poured on Jesus. 
And when Jesus enters heaven with his blood to present his blood at the holy of holies, the true holy of holies in the presence of God, and his blood is accepted for our atonement. We can't see that. But what we can see is all of this stuff going on in the crucifixion. We see the miscarriage of justice. We see an innocent man being tried and sentenced to death. Uh, We're going to see Pilate next week who knows he is innocent and feels his hands are politically tied, allowing him to be killed. We're going to... uh, We're going to see the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross and the fulfillment of prophecy and the suffering. But then it goes dark, and we don't see God forsaking. We don't see Jesus presenting his blood to God. And so the, the crucifixion helps us to understand the measure of God's love because we say, wow, he's going through all of this for me, for my salvation. And the reality is, it's much, much worse than what we see. Because behind the scenes, my sins are laid on him, and God punishes my sin as Jesus dies. And the fourth thing is, as followers, we're called to suffer multiple times in Jesus' teaching, he tells his followers, if you're going to follow me, you're going to suffer. Take up your cross and follow me. You know, living the Christian life is not about avoiding suffering. It's not about creating suffering. In other words, we, we live in the, in the middle and allow God to bring it in, and, but we're going to suffer. We're talking about um, studying the book of 1 Peter. First Peter is so much about suffering and suffering innocently as a person who is not suffering for the wrong that we're doing, but suffering because of doing right. That's our call. Paul wrote in Philippians that I may know him, the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. So we're going to pick up here next week. But I just, I, I just ask you, as I've been doing this, this the past couple of weeks, is just as we approach Easter, especially Good Friday and Easter, that we just meditate and consider the sufferings of Christ on my behalf. That, how could we ever lose the wonder that Jesus Christ took my sin to the cross and paid the penalty to give me salvation? That Jesus Christ took my sin and gave me his righteousness. So as I stand before God, I stand before God as a forgiven person. In fact, I stand before God as not a sinner with the righteousness of Christ. How could we ever lose the wonder of that? And when we start to, we need to recognize the instrument panel that says, uh, you're not paying attention. You're not focusing Get back to the word. The word is your instrument panel. And asking God to create in us a new heart, a new spirit, a new, to renew the joy. As we sang tonight, come on. I was thinking of some of the, some of the final psalms where they're saying, come on, soul. Uh, lift up your voices. Let's, let's go. Let's do this. And uh, this is the call that I have to call my own heart if I become used to the fact that Jesus died for me. Let's pray. 
Father, I pray that you would help each one of us to step back and fully consider your love for us. Father, I pray if there's anyone here that does not understand, has not received the free gift of salvation, that today would not end without them reaching out to us to understand what Christ did for me, to understand this is all about me. It's all about us individually. Thank you. Give us words to use to help us to express to you what is inexpressible, that you loved us. In Jesus' name, amen.